listeners and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. This episode was recorded in the NK News studio in Seoul on Wednesday, April 22nd, uh, and is scheduled to be launched on Thursday, April 23rd. Uh, our topic today is Michael Spavor, a good friend of the NK News team and also a uh, friend of Kim Jong-un, who's been very much in the news this week. So we're talking about him because tomorrow marks the 500th day of his detention in uh, in China. Uh, and so I'm joined in the studio by two guests and via Skype by two guests. So there's five of us in total. First of all, we have Chad O'Carroll from NK News. Welcome, Chad. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Good to see you again. And we have Dean Wellett, who is a professor of Kyung- at Kyungnam University and vice director at one of the university's research institutes. He is a Canadian who has lived in Korea for a number of years. Hi, Dean. Welcome. Uh, hello, Jacko. It's good to be here. Now joining us via Skype is Chris Peterson-Clausen. Chris is a filmmaker based in Beijing. He has traveled extensively to North Korea and is currently working on a documentary film that deals with the situation of Michael Spavel. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hello, Jacko. Thank you for having me. And finally, via Skype also, we have Martin Zatko, who hails from the United Kingdom. He's now in London. He's a freelance travel writer with more than 50 guidebooks under his belt. 50. Very impressive feat. Martin, thanks for joining us. Hi, Jacko. Thanks for the compliment. And uh, hi to the rest of you, too. All right. So, Mike, how do we all know him and what's our relationship to Michael Spavor? First of all, Dean, I think you might be one of the people who knows him who has known him the longest. I certainly met him through you back in 2008. How did you first meet Mike? Well, I guess I met Michael in uh, early 2005. Um, uh, we met at a conference on North Korea and humanitarian aid. and then, But I didn't really get to know him that well. It was just a, just a brief meeting. But then he was off to Pyongyang working with a Canadian NGO. I believe it was a global aid uh, network. Uh, that was providing uh, humanitarian assistance to North Korea, uh, nutritional assistance to orphanages. But they also ran um, a, two training programs, one on graphics uh, design and the other for English language training. And Michael had joined that um, and was there for a number of months until, well, to keep a long story short, the North Koreans kicked out the uh, international uh, uh, humanitarian organizations or at least the ones that weren't shifting to development assistance. Uh, Then in early 2006, Michael just uh, came by uh, my office and uh, we began to work together on some research projects, and I've known him ever since. Wow, yeah, that's that's quite a long time there. Uh, And and then Martin, uh, I think you uh, met him shortly after that, didn't you? Here in Seoul? Yeah, that's that's right. I think it was probably the year after uh, you met him, Dean. I, I'm trying to crunch the numbers in my head now. I think it was 2006 that we met because I, I, w- I would have been on my first guidebook project in Korea. Mike was a student in Chuncheon at the time, as I'm sure you're aware, Dean. So I met him in Chuncheon, and uh, the way we met might sound really familiar to anyone who knows him well or knows me well. I just finished up my research for the day, and I passed a convenience store. Uh, I was going to buy a drink. I think it was a non-alcoholic drink I intended to buy, I promise. Um, and then some guy sat outside the shop, said hi, and he said that he was sitting with some Korean guys, and uh, he said that one of them had foolishly bought a beer too many, so I could have the beer if I didn't mind sitting uh, sitting outside and joining them. So uh, I joined the uh, the other guys didn't last too long, and Mike and I had a, a few more drinks, I think, and uh, we've been friends ever since. So that's yeah, fourteen years now. Gosh, yeah, and then yeah, I met him in in two thousand and uh, I think two thousand and eight through Dean, 
Uh, and uh, shortly after that, he spoke to the Royal Asiatic Society. And my first trip to North Korea in uh, August 2010 was organized by Mike. So uh, we, we traveled to, uh, to Pyongyang together the day after I, uh, I quit a job here in Seoul. So I had quite an adventure up there with him. Uh, and we were hoping to see him there last year for the, uh, the marathon. But of course, yeah, that didn't work out. Uh, Chad, how about you? How do you know him? Yeah, I met Michael in 2013. I went to Yanji on a failed effort to go on a cruise from Yanji to, uh, I think it was Wonsan Kalma. Ah. There's a dodgy Singaporean company, I think it was Singaporean, running a, a cruise. And we got there and then the cruise was cancelled and we were stuck in Yanji. And of course, we went to stay with uh, Michael and just ended up having a blast of a time over uh, three, four days uh, in Yanji and... Uh, and sort of known him ever since, and uh, that was the time all the Rodman stuff was kicking off, and right, uh, we had yeah. Could, could Michael became very? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, how he became uh, famous to the world. He, well, he he was working as a facilitator consultant on the project with Rodman, and went with Rodman several times. Uh, has lots of great tales about meeting Kim Jong Un, and so on. But for me, I think the, fun, the funniest part of all that was. Uh, this was in the earlier days of NK News, and I, it was in the days when we were working in an office in my parents' basement in London, mm. and um, I remember getting a phone call in probably about 4pm London time, and it, Dennis Rodman was on the line, oh. uh, sounding very drunk. And <laughs> Where was he calling from? Wonsan. Oh, all the way to London. <laughs> Through Skype, and, it, and Michael was on the phone with him. And they were asking for tips on crisis management because I think that morning there'd been an interview with CNN that had gone very badly wrong. That one. <laughs> where, where Dennis Rodman was, was quite um, drunk. And uh, yeah, that was a, a very memorable afternoon. <laughs> Good God. Well, I don't think I can top that story. Um, that's, that's quite something. Um, I met Michael through a chat as well. I had seen Michael a couple of times in Pyongyang, the hotel lobby, where he would always sit with everybody else and drink a talk. Um, but we hadn't spoken there. And one day I was, I was uh, in the deep of winter, I was driving on the Chinese side for the entirety of the North Korean border to take photos. Michael was living in Yanji at the time. And in one of those minus 20 Celsius nights, he welcomed me into his home, which uh, was very, very much appreciated. Uh, I had a small little Chinese rental car that uh, couldn't uh, heat uh, very well in that kind of cold. And uh, the first thing he did is uh, offer me a warm meal. And then we went out, as one does with him. Uh, to have uh, definitely not non-alcoholic uh, beverages in Yanji. Yeah, oh, that does sound like a, a familiar uh, Mike story, is that, uh, that that friendliness and generosity of spirit and also some drinks afterwards. <laughs> As we all know, of course, he was arrested at, at Darien Airport uh, by the Chinese police on, uh, if I'm correct, Monday the 10th of December 2018 when he was trying to uh, board a flight to Seoul. That was yeah the beginning of this uh, this long nightmare. How uh, how did we find out about that? How did you find out about that, uh, Dean? Uh, well, I, I think some of this you know, Jacko, too, because uh, actually I had was supposed to meet uh, Michael uh, the day after um, the day after he was actually uh, arrested. Mm. Uh, we had scheduled to meet for dinner and then attend a Royal Asiatic Society lecture. 
Right. Uh, By former evening. guest Michael Hay, the late exactly. Michael Hay. Somebody yeah. who also knows Michael very, very well. You, you know, he didn't, uh, he stopped uh, responding to my texts on Monday and uh, I tried to get in touch with him uh, just uh, again through text messaging, uh, find out if he was going to be there. He didn't show up for dinner. I just went to the meeting and he didn't show up for that either. And so I think myself and everybody uh, that was waiting for him and expecting him, we knew something was wrong. Mm. Um, I contacted his family uh, and in uh, very uh, short words, they said they really couldn't explain uh, anything to me at that time. And so I knew something dreadfully wrong had Mm. happened. Uh, And shortly after that, I contacted another friend who, a close friend of Michael's, and he relayed the details to me of uh, the arrest in uh, Dalian. Gosh. Martin, do you remember how you heard about it? Yeah, quite well. Um, I was in Bangladesh when it happened, um, in some crappy hotel in the middle of nowhere. I remember before I went to bed, um, seeing a few messages on social media, including from yourself, I think, just wondering why Mike hadn't turned up to a, a certain meeting in Seoul. And I thought, ah, oh, come on, what's the problem here? It's Mike. He was probably out meeting his friends, uh, having some more of those alcoholic drinks that we mentioned. And uh, I thought not too much more of it, to be honest, despite the uh, the news of the previous day about the other Michael. I didn't join the dots in my head. And then um, when I woke up and turned on the TV, there it was, right in my face, on BBC, on CNN. Um, suddenly all of the uh, dots were joined, and I did that whole cliche pinching yourself thing did it a few times i didn't really know what to think uh, at the time i guess like a uh, lot of you a lot of uh, uh, people around the world probably watching the news i thought this is this would be a story that could wash over quite soon um i remember thinking if i could you know strike a deal and take 20 days or take a month would i take it uh, pointless though it is to think these things we do often think these uh, thoughts in crisis situations um, and now here we are up to what is it 499 days and counting yeah yeah and you make a good point we should mention to our listeners that of course michael's not the only person currently in chinese detention there was another michael arrested on almost the exact same day uh michael Kovrig, a uh, canadian diplomat who was on a uh, a year of sabbatical working for the international crisis group and he was also arrested around that time Chris, how did you hear about that? And, and did you know Michael Kovrig at all as well, or did you just know Michael Spavel? Uh, I don't know Michael Kovrig personally. I've, I've seen him once, at a, I think, at an event, but we didn't speak. Um, as far as uh, Michael Spavel is concerned, I found out, well, I saw that he was going to travel to Seoul, I think, from a Facebook post of his, where I think he asked people if there were anyone who wanted to do dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I didn't hear anything else, and then I had lunch with a common friend of ours uh, in, in Beijing, uh, who basically said, you know, there's a second Canadian arrested, you know who it is. And that's uh, when I found out. That was, I think, the day before Christopher Freeland uh, uh, went on the media and said uh, said that there were two Canadians and that she couldn't really say much more. Uh, Chad, what's he actually been charged with? I, do, I don't know the exact... Uh, title of the charge, maybe someone else on the line does, but all I do... I do. Oh, yeah. Uh, He's charged with endangering China's state security, um, which is an espionage charge. This is, however, a catch-all charge that the Ministry of State Security can use um, 
and does use very frequently in China to basically arrest anyone they want to investigate. How long can they hold a person under investigation without going to the next stage? My information is that uh, they are allowed to do this for six months and that it can be extended for another six months. Uh, so uh, we are well beyond that. And I've also heard that he now has two Chinese lawyers, uh, which would indicate that it's beyond the investigation phase now. Yeah, it was, he was charged with activities harmful to the, uh, the national security uh, of the Republic of China. Is the other Michael charged with the same crimes? I, I believe so. Was, um, wasn't he? Wasn't Michael Spavor linked to Michael Kovrig as some kind yeah. of agent or yeah. informant? Yeah, I record, Chris, do you remember something that I thought that the, the Chinese government alleged that one Michael was feeding information to the other Michael who was then selling it to a foreign agent or something like that? Yeah, something like that came later. I mean, later they've said that uh, Michael Kovrig is a spy and that uh, Michael Spavor was a source and that he fed him information. I see. Okay, so they, they are um, obviously uh, uh, very serious charges, but as you also point out, they're uh, charges that are convenient in that somebody can be held under suspicion of those charges for quite a long time without having to actually be uh, tried in a, in a court. And that hasn't, uh, hasn't actually happened yet. Has there been a date set for a trial, as far as you know, anyone? Not that I'm aware of. No. Okay, so there hasn't been a trial. We don't know a date of a trial. I am. Uh, I've just heard heard from you now for the first time, Chris, that Michael's actually been appointed two Chinese lawyers. I didn't know about that before. Um, I picked that up from the Globe and Mail. Um, Nathan Vandercliff has been really on the forefront of a reporting uh, that was a line that was mentioned in there. Yeah, I think it was actually uh, in uh, May of uh, two thousand nineteen where they actually formally charged Michael. Mm, of, yes. uh, that was the six-month point. That was six right, the six-month point he was formally so, charged. And yeah. so, so at that point, I, I believe the uh, Chinese authorities, according to their legal system, at that point they are supposed to provide legal counsel mm. um, to whoever is being charged. Whether or not that happened right away, I don't know. But uh, at some point after that, so for that, those first five months, for six months, uh, he did not have access to legal counsel. I think it's uh, quite worth mentioning that these, these kind of legal representation in China is not similar to what one would get in the West. Um, Chinese lawyers here are very beholden to the court system. They're not independent. Um, uh, Julian Kevin Garrett um, explained that quite well in their book, uh, Two Tears in a Window, uh, that, that these Chinese lawyers can't actually do very much for you. Hmm. Now, how does the case of the two Michaels relate to the, uh, the case of uh, Chinese citizen Meng Wenzhou? I have yet to find anybody on the Chinese side who is willing to even attempt to uh, uh, convince me that these cases are not related. Um, there have been uh, press conferences in which uh, Chinese government spokespeople have said that before the cases of the two Michaels could be discussed, the case of Meng Wenzhou would have to be uh, resolved. So I should point out to our listeners who may not be aware, so Meng Wanzhou is the uh, chief financial officer and the daughter of the founder of the company Huawei, uh, the founder uh, Reng Zhenfei uh, is his name, uh, and she was arrested on the 1st of December 2008, is that right? 2018. Sorry, yeah. Ten years. <laughs> yeah, 1st of December 2018. So that's roughly a week before the arrest of the two Canadian citizens. So both Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor are citizens of Canada. Uh, and Meng Wanzhou was arrested in Canada 
um, while traveling at the request of the United States government. Right, that they have, uh, uh, it says here in a story that I found in the South China Morning Post, the United States is seeking Meng's uh, extradition on bank fraud charges relating to Huawei's business dealings in Iran in alleged breach of US sanctions. So she was arrested in, in Vancouver and is uh, uh, currently under uh, sort of, a, we can't really call it house arrest because she's apparently able to travel around Vancouver uh, while wearing a, um, uh, an ankle monitoring bracelet, a GPS monitor, uh, but has to abide by a curfew, uh, but is allowed to stay in one of two uh, large homes that she, uh, she owns in Vancouver. So somehow uh, there's a suggestion, or certainly there's a very strong coincidental link between her uh, arrest on the 1st of December and the arrest of the two Michaels on the, uh, the 10th and the 11th uh, of December. And as Chris pointed out, uh, that there's a, a strong hint there that uh, before the two Michaels case can be talked about, the case of Mong must be finished with. Uh, which agency or which person was it who said that? Are you able to give us any details on that? So there were, there were government spokespeople who held press briefings. Uh, those are on YouTube as well now. Uh, so yes, uh, those are official statements. Um, other than that, of course, uh, there's precedent, right? Uh, this has happened before that Canada um, arrested a Chinese spy, uh, Su Bin, who was later convicted in the United States. And uh, China took two uh, Canadian citizens in return. And also, right, that's the, the Garats who you, you, you uh, mentioned earlier with the book, right? Correct. And also, right now, you have the Canadian ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, who has just given a briefing to the Canadian Parliament where he said the chill is real and the Chinese side is extremely angry over the uh, arrest of Meng Wanzhou, uh, as angry as. Uh, as Canada is over the rest of, of, the, of the two Michaels, and uh, that uh, both sides are are trying very hard to uh, to talk. Now um, we should look at a little bit how her case is progressing. So I, I did a bit of research in preparation for this podcast and found uh, an article from the from Canada's National Post that summarised that uh, Long's uh, extradition hearings were supposed to happen in April and June, but they've been disrupted by the uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, they actually had a hearing completely by video phone uh, on the last day of March. Uh, and the next hearing is supposed to be at the end of April, April 27th. Whether that will go ahead or not with the uh, the coronavirus pandemic, we don't know. But it, certainly the, the wheels of justice in Canada are, are going quite slowly, uh, Dean, the, it would appear. Is that normal? That extra, uh, extradition he hearings could take this long? Uh, you know, I can't really uh, comment on that. I'm not a legal specialist. Um, I haven't lived in Canada for uh, for an awful long time. Things can take uh, a while uh, in Canada, but, you know, uh, one thing we have is a democratic process uh, in the country, uh, and so they will uh, follow that to the letter. Yeah, so... We have this uh, the suggestion that, yeah, that um, basically until Ms. Mong is freed, the two Michaels won't be freed. Uh, the circumstances of their imprisonment are quite different. I've already mentioned that uh, Ms. Mong is under a sort of a semi-house arrest with a curfew uh, and living you know, quite okay uh, in terms of the accommodation she's got. What do we know about the treatment or the, uh, the imprisonment circumstance of the two Michaels? Well, it's very, at the start, at least, the first six months, there was a lot of uh, texture and detail which was coming out about the conditions, which suggested there were lights on 24-7 in the cells. 
um, very little, yeah, a lot of interrogation. Um, there was also claims that Michael Kovrig, uh, his reading glasses had been uh, confiscated. Um, and that all uh, chimes with other accounts I've heard of, of people going through those kind of uh, things. I think it's right in saying that um, conditions have improved a bit. But while he's been entitled to a monthly uh, meeting with Canadian uh, diplomatic officials, that has been suspended now due to, to COVID-19. I think it's been three months, they've, three months, they've yeah. said. That's right. Yeah, that, that, yeah. yeah, which is is very unfortunate uh, for Michael. You know, One thing I just jog your memory maybe, Jacko, is um, you, some of our listeners might remember we interviewed a young man called Miles, uh, an American at Christmas time who had illegally swum into North Korea and then been kicked out a couple well several months later yeah and he he did some jail time in in near Dandong uh, I seem to recall and he said that after the uh, initial investigation uh, he was treated actually very very well and you know they were asked the prison guards were asking like what kind of food does he want and bringing delivery stuff in and Mm. Um, and his message, I recall, when we spoke in Christmas time, was that once Michael gets past this, hopefully it will be will be better. But maybe Christian, you have more information on that. Yeah, do you know anything about where he is, Chris? He's in the Dandong detention facility, which is uh, close to the airport. He is apparently right now stuck in a quite small cell with a lot of people. I heard different numbers, maybe 15, maybe 20 people in these kind of cells. These are group cells. And, of course, now with the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, these kind of places are are absolute hotspots, potential hotspots for, for infection. So, yeah, we are quite worried about him. And it should be said in that regard that over in Iran, um, the Iranian authorities have actually released a lot of political, quote-unquote, political prisoners including a British Iranian lady who right. the UK Foreign Office have for five years failed to get back. And she's been released temporarily, at least, mm. due to COVID concerns in Iran about uh, what it's like in places like Evan Prison. And I find it you know, notable that the, the Chinese are not doing that. Yeah, no, that is a, it, it, no, that they're not, number one, not uh, allowing them out even temporarily, uh, given the circumstances, and number two, they're not allowing the consular visits to right. uh, to continue. Uh, I did read in one article that um, the Chinese were letting Michael Kovrig speak on the phone with his father, who is ill, uh, and that they were feeding the men better because of the outbreak. Chris, do you know anything about whether the food situations improved because of the outbreak at all? Um, I have heard once a media report that uh, they are being given better food. Um, nobody really knows what that exactly means. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's not ribeye steak. No, I mean, uh, to go back to Kevin Garrett's face from, from a couple of years ago, he would say, you know, food would just not appear uh, every once in a while. And... Um, a lot of what had had to happen was uh, that his wife uh, put money into the commission commissary that uh, he was able to buy himself additional food, and he still lost quite a lot of weight. Um, right now, nobody can go to Dandong, including the uh, um, consular officials, um, because here in China, travel is severely restricted. Um, to travel across a provincial border, even by car, would entail getting a full COVID test and being... Um, yeah, being held up for multiple hours at, at checkpoints. Um, uh, apart from that, many, many hotels will not let you in. Many cities and many villages will not let you pass. 
um, because we're afraid of getting anything. And this area where Michael is right now is a hotspot. Um, both Jinin, Liaoning, and Heilongjiang province see a lot of returning Chinese or have seen a lot of returning Chinese um, uh, through the Russian border, uh, through Siberia. And uh, quite frankly, there's uh, been so many uh, cases now that uh, they have completely sealed off the borders up there and become quite strict about uh, watching for people who are not from the area. That is very concerning. Um, before the, the, the coronavirus outbreak, when the situation was more or less normal, how long would it take uh, for a Canadian diplomat to visit you know, Dandong from the embassy in Beijing? How would they get there and how long would that take, Chris? Uh, my understanding is actually that the staff uh, that is visiting is coming from Shanghai. Um, it doesn't make a big difference. Uh, you can take pretty much a flight every two hours to Shenyang and from there take a rental car and drive. Uh, that would take you another five hours. Man. Or you could take from Beijing, I think there's twice daily flights to Dandong and from Shanghai there's maybe once daily. But all that is severely curtailed right now as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because there's so little movement within uh... China right now. Now, there was this story that came in the press a couple of months ago, uh, Dean, about uh, Michael giving haircuts to fellow prisoners. Can you tell us about that? Michael, uh, regardless of the situation he's in, uh, he always tries to make the best of it. And uh, essentially, from my understanding, uh, he is in a detention facility in a room uh, crowded with uh, other prisoners. Uh, I don't think he speaks very much Chinese, so that makes communication very difficult. Mm. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, Michael kind of thrives uh, on uh, on making friends or acquaintances and uh, uh, lightening the situation up, making people feel comfortable. Um, and so I heard that um, he was nominated as the, uh, the barber for the, everybody in the cell, uh, partially probably because uh, none of the other prisoners trust the other prisoners with a pair of scissors. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, if they're willing to trust him uh, to do that, cut, his, uh, cut their hair, uh, that just says something about uh, the character that Michael is. Right. Martin, does that sound like uh, something that... that uh that Michael would be likely to do? Absolutely. He's cut my hair once, actually. Ah, there you go. So he has form then. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to tell you how good or bad the haircut was. was, That was was, my next uh, question. Was it a good tonsure? (laughs) No, I was staying at his place in Yanji for a month. He was uh, was always begging me to come and and hang with him because, well, Yanji, if you've been there, is a a very small town, small city, I should say, by Chinese standards. Yeah. And his circle of uh, non-Chinese, (laughs) non-Korean... Um, speaking friends was very small there, so he he was very grateful when any um, friends went to visit. But um, going back to the haircut, yeah, it uh, it doesn't surprise me. I remember when I first heard about the news, when like I told you, I was in Bangladesh. I was thinking, ah, oh, he's he, he's going to thrive, uh, as as one of you just said. He's probably going to be swapping cigarettes with the guards, uh, trading stories, doing things like this. So, uh, yeah, when the news came through that he was in solitary confinement, the lights always on, interrogation, things like that, I was uh, very worried about him. And I think that anyone that knows Mike would have been extremely worried about him because he's 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 more of a people person than anyone else I know. So solitary confinement must have been driving him crazy. 
Um, so when the news came out more recently that he'd been transferred to a shared room with about 20 people there, yeah. um, it was a relief in many ways. Of course, a worry in other ways. You know, the, the fact that there are scissors in the room isn't necessarily good news. Maybe they're not there all the time. They might not be there all the time, but in prisons you never know, right? No, and, no, uh, true. But I think on balance it's a very good thing that he's 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 with other people. And from the he's been able to send out a couple of uh, messages to... To friends and family, uh, while he's while he's been there, I send a message every month, and uh, through those messages, he kind of intimates that he's he's in decent spirits, he's uh, not having a great time. He has alluded, and it surprises me that some of these things have managed to get out given the strictures of the Chinese system. He's alluded to feeling down. He's alluded to uh, very hard moments and hard times, but. Uh, the mic that we know is the type of character that will bounce back from these. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good way to, to summarise. And it is important to point out that, yeah, um, although he's not able to have any visitors, he has been able to uh, at least communicate uh, in writing uh, with friends and family. And it's through that uh, communication that we've uh, um, learned that, uh, you know, Michael put together a request list of books that he would like to get to, uh, to read and to study while in prison, amongst which were... Uh, uh, Chinese language books. So uh, clearly, he's trying to to learn a bit of Chinese. Dean, you got some and, and palm reading. And I, I was going to come that. It was my next one. Palm reading. <laughs> so he wants to be able to read the palms of fellow prisoners uh, and, and tell them, you know, uh, what he's learned about them. Um, I, I got well, it's a easier mind, than speaking Chinese, isn't it? And so, yeah, you've got to first of all translate all that into Chinese, I suppose. But yeah, a friend of mine <laughs> bought a book on on palm reading in the United States. But the, the Chinese have a uh, a rule in, at the prison that the books, uh, they have to be uh, clean, and, and so there can't be any writing or, or marks inside the books, and they have to be soft cover. Uh, they, you can't have a, a hardback. So a uh, friend bought a, a great book on palmistry. Unfortunately, it was hardback, so I just tore the cover off and <laughs> exactly. gave the insides of the book uh, to the embassy. Well, that was a, we don't know uh, whether that's gone through yet, because by the time I got the book and gave it to the embassy, you know, the COVID crisis had already started. So... We don't know when he'll get all these books, but we do know that there is a large pile uh, mounting at the embassy here in Seoul and hopefully also at the embassy in Beijing uh, that will one day get through to uh, Michael. And I, I guess that brings me to the question of what can we best do to help him right now? There are, I think there are lots of things that we could do, but the, probably the most important is, you know, respecting the will and uh, preferences of the family, uh, which is... Uh, in a nutshell, to, to stay relatively low profile and quiet. It, personally speaking, I, I I think it would be I think it would be maybe there could be more progress if this was a la, la, like a, there was more spotlight on it routinely and it was in the media more often because uh, we have seen the Chinese government responding to some things. For example, there were uh, joint there was letters written by dozens of academics on the Michael Covered case mm -hmm. and that directly resulted in the Chinese Foreign Ministry responding to it and I just think if there were things like that occurring on a, on a frequent basis um, we, we, we can't tell if it, if it is directly linked to Ming it, you know it may mean that it's all a waste of time and nothing is going to change the big picture. Yeah you do bring up a good point there is that the, the family has said that they are um, uh, following the advice of the Canadian government uh, and a, a quote that I've got here from the National Post about the Canadian government is, uh, the position of the Trudeau government has been no escalation, but no backing down. And that's from uh, Stephanie Carvin, international relations professor at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. 
Uh, and a lot, she went on to say, a lot of people think that's insufficient in the case of the two Michaels. Uh, Dean, I don't know if you want to comment on that. As a Canadian citizen, would you like to see a more activist stance by the Trudeau government? Well, you know, I, I think, um, you know, after, uh, you know, the, the Canadian elections last fall and there was a, a new foreign minister um, uh, sworn in and, you know, he stated that uh, getting both Michaels and securing their release is uh, an absolute priority for the government. Uh, I know I've spoken with uh, Canada's ambassador to uh, China uh, shortly after he assumed his duties in the fall, too, and he's made uh, securing the release of uh, both men uh, his number one priority. Um, I think at this stage, uh, of course, I think what, what the government should be doing uh, is continuing to make concerted efforts to, uh, at the very least, regain consular access and regularize consular access mm. uh, to Michael. That's first and foremost. Just one thing, though. Does yeah. top, top priority in Canada, has Trudeau made specific phone calls to Xi Jinping about this issue? Has Trudeau tried to go to Beijing personally to resolve this issue? Has the, has the Canadian foreign minister gone to Beijing? Have, have the families been going to Beijing? Like that, if it's if it's top priority, I would expect to see things like that, and I haven't no. seen any any media reports about any of those things happening. Yeah, and the, uh, the there was also a previous am, a Canadian ambassador to Beijing who was a bit more outspoken, wasn't he, Dean? Uh, yeah, I guess so. That got him into a little bit of trouble. What uh, was it that he said that got the? I, I can't really. Uh, I'm not really going to comment on uh, on on those. Uh, I don't know the facts well enough. Uh, but obviously, for actually a, a lengthy period of time, there was no Canadian ambassador uh, in China. Mm. Uh, and so uh, it wasn't until last fall that uh, the new ambassador took the post and has uh, uh, begun to um, do his duties to try and secure the release of both gentlemen. Um, but uh, shifting the subject, because... Uh, uh, you know, I think the politics is really out of reach for for the average citizen uh, and for all of Michael's friends. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, one thing that can be done, there is a, um, a GoFundMe uh, web page that was started. I think it's um, help for Michael um, and people who are interested in making donations. I, I would really encourage that. Um, that will uh, actually help the family. Um, cover some of the costs of, uh, of Michael's incarceration. I believe that they're uh, they've been paying for on a monthly basis for um, supplementary meals for him. Mm. Uh, prison food isn't that good, and then it'll just help Michael get back on his feet when he's uh, uh, eventually released. Uh, give him a little bit of a financial cushion to to do something. Uh, and then again, just uh, there's the website as well. Uh, there's a handful of uh, uh, short stories uh, about Michael. Could and you I, give that a, a, the URL of that website? Uh, yeah, what is the... FreeMichaelSpavor.com. Uh, yeah, FreeMichaelSpavor.com. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and, uh, you know, I, all the friends of Michael out there are people that know him. Um, you know, you could write a short anecdote and um, uh, contact the family and uh, put that forward and see if they'll... Uh, They'll put that on their website. But even still, um, if you were to do something like that and send that to the family, eventually, uh, once Michael is out, uh, you know, he's had such an extraordinary life himself. I'm mm. sure um, he's going to need time to uh, 
uh, think of what he is going to do in the future. He's going to look back at what he's done. He may write a book, uh, and perhaps all of our own stories may be um, assist him mm. uh, in some ways to remember some of the facts, some of the, the good times he had, um, and uh, and use that kind of as a springboard himself to do his own writing. Um, yeah. Let like me that. use that as a jumping off point. Martin, you're a, a published author and quite a prolific one, 50 guidebooks to your name. Um, have you written to uh, to Michael about uh, putting together a book when he comes out in the future? Yeah, um, I've, uh, I've mentioned it briefly to him. I mean, all messages that we send in to, uh, to Mike are obviously going to be vetted by yeah. various authorities in China. So... Um, sometimes it's it's tough to know what to say, but I've made um, passing comment that potentially uh, this could be one avenue for for when he gets out, because as you've mentioned, uh, he's he's just lost uh, pretty much everything he had, work wise, well, right. home wise, all all of his possessions have been boxed up, and I think uh, a few of them have been sent back to his family in Canada. Um, and well, not just me. Um, I'm a simple guidebook writer, but uh, he has other friends who have written proper books, and uh, they will also be, I'm sure, very happy to ghostwrite or to assist him or to to do the whole thing themselves. I think that it, yeah, he really must write a book about his experience, and I think it's also a good way to potentially raise a bit of money through the GoFundMe. That if you if you can work out uh, with the family or through the family with Michael, uh, sort of a, an, an amount that if a person uh, donates a certain amount of money, they get a, a pre-release copy of the book signed by Michael. You know, of course, that'll be some years down the track when you know, when he's out and that book is published. But it's a, a you know, that's how some of these crowdfunding things work, right? That you you uh, invest this much and you get that, you know, you get something very specific and concrete in return. That sounds like a good you idea. You could probably have it signed by Kim Jong Un as well. Well, or or at least Dennis Rodman. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the biggest tragedies of all of this, besides his detention, is Michael's love for Korea. Mm. His, his whole focus professionally yep. um, from Personally. his friendships. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned to you this before. In, in our very office, we've got a bunch of white shirts just mm. behind us that Michael bought for a North Korean friend, left here just a few weeks before he went back to China and got detained. Um, that's the kind of guy he is. All of that investment, professionally, friendship-wise, it's going to be very, very tough for him to work on the career portfolio moving forward, simply because most vectors to get into the country uh, rely on access to China. Uh, only one or two flights a week from Vladivostok. Right. Um, also, this this could potentially be a barrier, just generally from the North Korean perspective, given the close relations with Beijing uh, and the charges that have been um, placed on him, it it may make the North Korea give the North Koreans pause for thought about cooperating further, and he need will need those visas if he's ever to work there. And so that that's for me the biggest tragedy is that this guy is like one you know a cultural ambassador, if you will, yeah. has put so much into the subject and could give so much to the Korean people. And we should point out um, that's the exact reason why he was living in China in the first place is because. You know, uh, it's not, it's almost impossible. It's not impossible, but it's almost impossible for uh, a non-Korean to live inside North Korea. Uh, and so living on the border with North Korea on the Chinese side, that's the next best thing. That's the exact closest place where Michael could be in Dandong, where he could be uh, well-placed to uh, to work as a cultural ambassador, as a facilitator, 
between you know, North Korea and the rest of the world. So the only reason he was there in Dandong was because that was what uh, gave him access to uh, and proximity uh, to North Korea. Uh, and and the, the idea that, um, you know, uh, that he should be uh, have engaged in activities that are dangerous to the, the, the state security of China, it, it seems almost uh, ludicrous because, you know, Michael didn't speak or read Chinese. He's not interested uh, in, in what's happening in China. He's interested in what's happening in North Korea and how that could be dangerous to the Chinese state. I, I really don't know. I should say that uh, while he was living in Yanji, um, when I visited him, he was probably about three years into his his, his stay in China. And uh, he took me to his favorite restaurants. There was one uh, one really good um, barbecue joint just up the road from his place, staffed entirely by North Koreans. Um, and uh, then after a week or so of eating Korean food, I told him, well, what about we eat some Chinese food? And he said, well, what kind of Chinese food do you fancy? And I took him to just a general Chinese restaurant where you can get all of the staples. And he, he basically had no idea what any of them were. And after three years, and that shows how completely focused on uh, on Korea he he was even while living there. And it's uh, it's true, Chad, what you say that he's and unfortunately a lot of that mental um, capital may have been uh, lost because he cultivated such good contacts in North Korea. Um, but it's uh, it's also true that he has plenty of contacts in the other Korea, and he has worked for the city government of Seoul there. He has worked for the national government also uh, for their uh, for their their tourist board, um, and he's got stacks of friends there in journalism, in business, everything. So I don't think he'll be too short of um, of career related avenues uh, when he finally gets out. Although perhaps South Korea rather than North Korea. Mm, we we hope so. Uh, Chris, can you tell us about the uh, the documentary that you're making and the process of it? So the documentary film is called Hostage Diplomacy, and it deals um, with this kind of practice of uh, governments trying to exact pressure on to other governments uh, by taking their citizens, by uh, detaining, arresting uh, citizens who have committed no crimes. And uh, Michael is a prime example for that. And uh, this whole thing got started basically because uh, it was it was it's my opinion that uh, to stand by idly and, and not to do anything is to be complicit, and um, I, I believe that this is a practice that needs to end. That uh, that uh, and I kind of agree with with Chad on that in that uh, it needs to be more in the forefront of people. There needs to be more attention uh, going out. Uh, so this is a film that will deal um, a lot with what has happened to Michael and to other people, but also uh, with what happens after, with uh, the road to recovery, with uh, the road to rebuild uh, one's life. Because as you guys are saying correctly, um, his future existence here in China would be, uh, at the very least, very difficult. With, with the case of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Garrett, when they were released, uh, they had to leave China, didn't they? Yes, uh, and quite frankly, they wanted to leave China as well. Um, uh, so I don't were, imagine that Michael were... could either stay, nor would he be allowed to uh, once he gets he, out. He, he will need a breakthrough in inter-Korean relations, like a real breakthrough, where there will be you know, unimpeded travel between two countries on a regular basis. That That's what it take, will take, I think. And also some appetite of risk from the North Koreans that they would be willing to... Uh, you know, have have him back despite all the charges and their relationship with China. So mm. It's tough. 
It will be difficult. Uh, it's, it would be nice to end on a, on a, on a more hopeful note. Uh, but, uh, yeah, sadly, 500 days in, we don't see a way out yet at this stage. Um, so all we can do is, is direct our listeners to uh, the uh, website freemichaelspavor.com. Yes. Yep. And also the uh, GoFundMe, GoFundMe.com, uh, Michael Spavor as one word, uh, or you can search for uh, Help for Michael. Uh, now, I should point out that there are some people who may be, um, uh, who in the first week, may be aware, in the very first week when we set up this GoFundMe page, uh, it was taken down by GoFundMe. And uh, the reason behind that was never made explicitly clear was that because it was, uh, because Michael had been to North Korea, or was it because of a, a fear of, um, agitating the Chinese government, that's not clear. But what we can say very clearly is that the GoFundMe, that uh, problem was sorted out. GoFundMe reinstated the webpage, uh, the exact same link that we started off at the beginning. So that's all um, up and going uh, without any problems right now. So people can, can donate any uh, amount of money they like in any currency that they like um, for, uh, for Michael to help him to get back on his feet once he gets out of, uh, out of Chinese prison. Yeah, and I, I would just second that. I mean, it's it's a really just imagine being a pawn in this massive game of geopolitical chess, and it being completely outside of your control. Uh, it, I mean, it would it would be very challenging for anyone to go through that. So I think if if people are listening and they, they want to help out, I really you know urge you to to make some donations. Yeah, uh, we. Get some final comments from people there. Let's imagine, let's leave a, a, a positive comment for Michael to hear when he does get out and hears this podcast, uh, hopefully in the very near future. Well, I, yeah, I, I uh, don't really know what to say there. But, you know, Michael, he's uh, he's a resilient fellow. Um, and I think he'll he'll find a way to reinvent himself uh, and move forward. You know, he's uh, he's never been a quitter, or at least I've never known him to be that. Um uh, and just because he, uh, you know, he networks so well, he uh, he works with other people uh, very well. He connects people uh, very well. Um, you know, I traveled an awful lot with him, um, and p- probably be because he made me feel very comfortable uh, and uh, secure. And I knew things would, uh, regardless of of uh, what can happen during uh, your travel, in particular to North Korea. Michael can handle it, and uh, he. Uh, I think once he's out, um, he'll find his path, he'll find his road, and he'll be okay. Well, I'm looking forward to getting in a taxi with him again, where he pulls out a North Korean 5001, <laughs> and his photo is shaking hands with Kim jo- Kim Jong Un and the taxi driver in Seoul, being like, "What the?" F-? <laughs> <laughs> Which I've seen many times. <laughs> Uh, Martin, final comment from you. Just, you just reminded me of uh, when I was having a, a meal with Michael, and he did the same trick—not in a taxi, but in a, a very, a very crowded food hall, where there was a guy playing a trumpet, or I know he was playing a saxophone, and Michael got him to play Pangapsanida, and he refused. And Mike said, "No, no, it's just a welcoming song. It doesn't necessarily mean North Korean." So he played the song and uh, there were probably, well, I don't know, 50, 60, maybe even 100 Koreans clapping along to this. And then when the guy finished the song, Mike uh, gave him a tip with a North Korean bill. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> but Mike, through the, through, the, uh, through the messages he's been able to send me, 
has intimated that he can't wait to to travel, uh, excuse me, travel with me again because we have travelled together within South Korea, within uh, uh, wider Asia. We even managed to uh, to track down his family because his grandmother was from Slovakia. Uh, my father's from Slovakia, so when we both happened to be in Europe at the same time, he said, well, what about we find my my family together? They were living in some, well, they still are living in some tiny village in Slovakia, and they'd had no contact with Mike's family for two generations. Wow. So uh, it was wonderful to, to go there with him and to experience that and to see a village where almost everybody looked a bit like him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> this is not a joke, it was actually true. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so basically, I can't wait to travel with him as soon as uh, soon as he's released. Thank you, Martin. Uh, Chris, any final words from you? Well, I, I hope it doesn't take until he's released for him to know that people have not forgotten about him, that people are trying to help in his situation, uh, that they are talking about him, that they're thinking about him, that they're missing him. Uh, other than that, I, I pretty much agree with everyone else. I can't wait to see him again, to go have a, have a meal with him, to make new plans, maybe... Some of them won't come to fruition, and other ones will be the next big world news, akin to what he did with Rotman. That's great. I, I second all those uh, those thoughts there. And, and Michael, we look forward to having you back with our presence again and having uh, uh, another trip to uh, Purunbyeoljumak, our favorite uh, Makali house up there near uh, uh, Anguk Station. Um, until then, stay well and stay strong, and we'll keep writing and sending those books to you. Well, that is uh, going to wrap it up for today. Uh, that's the end of our podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Please keep subscribing to the uh, the podcast so you can get an episode every week. And also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. <laughs>